Rainbow Valley is a monthly podcast where your host Scott takes a look at key events and personalities that shaped one of the most influential, vibrant, tumultuous and swinging decades in history. Join us as we celebrate the 1960s with the stories surrounding the music and news events of the decade that shook the world. The story of the making of Cleopatra is the story of a movie that took nearly five years to make. Production costs nearly led to the bankruptcy of 20th Century Fox, and a love story unfolded off-camera as well as on-screen between the two leads. A love story that will be on the front pages of the world's press day after day. It is one of the greatest movies of the 1960s, and its production also marks the end of the great Hollywood studio system. Ladies and gentlemen, Rainbow Valley is proud to present the story of the making of Cleopatra. I'm a prophet, I'm the resurrector, I'm the savior of the boxing world. If it wasn't for me, the game would be dead. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Some people are on the face, they think it's all over. It is now. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. The story begins way back in the silent days of Hollywood. In 1917, Fox released the original non-talky version of Cleopatra, starring the enigmatic Theda Barra in the title role. The president of 20th Century Fox in 1958 was Spiros Skouros. Skouros was a big fan of the original Cleopatra movie and was convinced it was one of the best pictures the studio had ever made. So why not try to recreate that success with a modern, technicolor, non-silent version of the movie? And so, on September 30th, 1958, Skouros called in veteran producer Walter Wanger to take a look at the original Cleopatra script and see what could be done with it. Wanger had produced more than 60 motion pictures, including Queen Christina, Scarlet Street, Stagecoach, Foreign Correspondent, I Want to Live, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He had worked with directors such as John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock, Juge Cukor, Victor Fleming, Fritz Lang, and Don Siegel. 
and the list of stars who he'd worked with included Ingrid Bergman, the Marx Brothers, Henry Fonda, Charles Boyer, Cary Grant, Claudette Colbert, Frederick March, Susan Hayward and Greta Garbo. He was one of the best known and most competent producers in Hollywood and Skouros believed he would be the perfect man to produce the new movie. Throughout his career, Wanger had worked for all the major studios. MGM, RKO, Paramount, Eagle Lion, Universal and United Artists. Now he continued his success as an independent producer in charge of his own production company. It was 1958, things were starting to change in Hollywood, but still the old studio system way of working stood rigidly in place. General production manager at Fox was Lou Schreiber, and straight away he reminded Wanger that whatever he did, he should always respect the rules of the now old-fashioned studio system. Only talk to Schreiber or Billy Adler, the studio head. If your ideas are approved, they will take them to New York, and here the final decisions will be made. If you need to discuss anything to do with the writing, don't talk to the writers. See David Brown, the studio story editor, first. And finally, don't talk to the actors without going to the casting department first. It was going to be a long, tough road ahead for Walter Wanger if he was going to make a success of the picture. Meetings and negotiations continue throughout the autumn and winter of 1958. Initially, Buddy Adler, the studio head, stated that the movie could be made for $1 million or $1.2 million at a push, with Joan Collins in the lead role. But Wanger wanted more. He envisioned more than just your bog-standard sword and sandals epic. Cleopatra was a blockbuster of a story, and as such, the movie should be a blockbuster as well. Buddy Adler had always thought that the movie would be an ideal opportunity to make use of their contract stars, such as Joan Collins, Joanne Woodward or Susie Parker, as well as their contract cameramen, the grips, the electricians, and especially if the film could be made on the studio lot. Elizabeth Rosemont Taylor was born on February 27th, 1932, in London. One of film's most celebrated stars, Elizabeth Taylor fashioned a career that covered more than six decades, except in roles that not only showcased her beauty, but her ability to take on emotionally charged characters. Taylor's American parents, both art dealers, were residing in London when she was born. Soon after the outbreak of World War II, the Taylors returned to the United States and settled into their new life in Los Angeles. Performance was in Taylor's blood. Her mother had worked as an actress until she married. 
At the age of three, the young Taylor started dancing and eventually gave a recital for the princesses Elizabeth and Margaret. Not long after relocating to California, a family friend suggested the Taylor's daughter take a screen test. She soon signed a contract with Universal Studios and made a screen debut at the age of 10 in There's One Born Every Minute in 1942. She followed that up with a bigger role in Lassie Come Home 1943 and later The White Cliffs of Dover the following year. Her breakout role, however, came that same year, 1944, with National Velvet, a role Elizabeth Taylor spent four months working to get. National Velvet, a great story. As a highly successful Book of the Month Club selection, this fine-spirited drama, with its very unusual title, thrilled thousands of readers. Metro-Golden-Mayer now presents this most human story of a boy, a girl, and a horse in all the warm tenderness of its modest, unpretentious sincerity. National Velvet, an intriguing title. The Velvet is for Velvet Brown, shy and unassuming. Her only dream in life is horses, particularly after she wins an unruly, mischief-loving sorrel in a raffle. As to the national part of the title, with wholesome faith in her horse, the pie, Velvet and the boy trained him for the grand national steeplechase the greatest, grandest prize a horse ever won. As to the boy, he is courageous, stout of heart. The horse not good enough? The pie? That's not only the pie, ma'am, nor the money, it's a score of other things. 30 jumps, the hardest course in the world. The national, the greatest race on earth. Training him month on month. Then there's Velvet's young brother. I was sick all night. And her loving, understanding mother. Things come suitable to the time, Velvet. Enjoy each thing, then forget it and go on to the next. The time for everything. The time for having a horse in the Grand National. Being in love, having children. Velvet's father isn't a frivolous man. But I'd like to risk a couple of pounds. Put it on the pie for me. Yes, sir. And I'll not be angry if you don't tell the missus about it. burst your own foolish heart to look at an account of five thousand pounds in a solid bank? Can't help it, Father. I'd sooner have that horse happy than go to heaven. We promise you the thrill of your movie-going experience in the running of the Grand National. Sincerely and honestly, we make you this promise, too. It's been a mighty long time since you've seen a better picture than National Velvet. subsequently turned out to be a huge hit that pulled in more than $4 million and made the 12-year-old actress a huge star. In the glare of the Hollywood spotlight, the young actress showed she was more than adept at handling celebrities' tricky terrain. Even more impressive was the fact that unlike so many child stars before and after her, 
Taylor proved she could make a seamless transition to more adult roles. Her stunning looks helped. At just 18, she played opposite Spencer Tracy in Father of the Bride. Taylor also showed her acting talents in 1954 with three films The Last Time I Saw Paris, Rhapsody and Elephant Walk, the latter of which saw Taylor take on the role of a plantation owner's wife who's in love with the farm's manager. Her personal life only boosted the success of her films. For a time, she dated millionaire Howard Hughes. Then, at the age of 17, Elizabeth Taylor made her first entrance into marriage when she wed the hotel heir Nicky Hilton. While her love life continued to make international headlines, Taylor continued to shine as an actress. She delivered a riveting performance in the drama A Place in the Sun and turned things up even more in 1956 with the film adaptation of the Edna Ferber novel Giant that co-starred James Dean. Two years later, she sizzled on the big screen in the film adaptation of Tennessee Williams' Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and the following year she starred in another Williams classic suddenly last summer. Walter Wanger had always envisioned Elizabeth Taylor in the role of the Egyptian Queen. When first approached, she was married to Mike Todd and the pair were inseparable. With Wanger planning to film on location, any chance of Taylor saying yes was just a hopeful dream. Until tragedy struck in 1958. Taylor became a young widow when her husband Mike Todd, the pioneering film producer, was killed in a plane crash. November 1958, Walter Wanger met again with Elizabeth Taylor in an attempt to revive her interest in the movie. He gave her a copy of The Life and Times of Cleopatra to read, for as yet the movie still had no script. The approval to actually write the script would not come until 1958, with the first rough draft being assembled by Ludie Clare. In an attempt to give some idea of the size and the scale of the picture he was aiming for, Walter Wanger got art director John DeQueer to construct models and complete sketches of the Forum and the Palace. And yet, the studio head still stood firm. Spiros Skouros wanted Joanne Woodward in the lead role, and Buddy Adler was insistent that it went to Joan Collins. By February 1959, Walter Wanger's vision was ready to present to the studio heads. At last, with help from massive reconstructions of the forum, along with dozens of intricate sketches of the set design, Adler and Schreiber finally got a good idea of what Walter Wanger had in mind. The script was looking good, even in draft form, but the wrangling over the cast continued on and on. Ideally, Wanger wanted Taylor as Cleopatra, Sir Lawrence Olivier as Caesar, and Richard Burton as Mark Antony. The studio were looking at Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, Cary Grant as Caesar, and Burt Lancaster as Mark Antony. But that wasn't the end of it. For example, other actors put forward by casting for Caesar were Sir John Gilgood, Yul Brynner and Kurt Jurgens. For Cleopatra, suggestions included Sophia Loren, Gina Lollabrigida, Susan Haywood, Jennifer Jones, Kim Novak, Audrey Hepburn 
and incredibly Brigitte Bardot and Marilyn Monroe. But it didn't stop there. In serious contention at one point were the contract actresses Joan Collins, Dolores Michaels, Millie Perkins, Barbara Steele and Susie Parker. And as for Mark Antony, the selection included Anthony Franciosa, Kirk Douglas, Marlon Brando, Stephen Boyd, Jason Robards Jr., Richard Basart and Richard Burton. On and on through 1958, Nigel Balkin signed on to prepare the screenplay based on Ludie Clare's recent outline. Elizabeth Taylor married Eddie Fisher in May this year. Shooting for Cleopatra was penciled in to start in July. Following her honeymoon, Elizabeth Taylor was already committed to filming suddenly last summer for Columbia, so it was looking unlikely that she would actually be available for Cleopatra. Negotiations continued with Sophia Loren, Gina Lollabrigida and Audrey Hepburn in June. And also in June, the preliminary production cost estimate based on Nigel Balkin's script was produced. The operating budget for Cleopatra, labelled production number J01, called for 64 days shooting. It revealed that the total cost, without cast or director, was supposed to come to $2,955,700. August 1959, Elizabeth Taylor and Audrey Hepburn both agreed that they wanted to play Cleopatra. Hepburn was soon ruled out as she was under contract at Paramount who refused to release her. Susie Parker dropped out of the running after revealing that she'd fallen pregnant. And still, Elizabeth Taylor remained Wanger's first choice no matter what, even when she demanded the then unheard of sum of $1 million to star in the movie. On and on, the negotiations continued. Fox stood firm. They wanted Susan Hayward for the part as she was one of their contract actresses. Plus she would be a hell of a lot cheaper than $1 million. Intense haggling took place. A guarantee of $750,000 against 10% of the gross demanded Taylor. Fox offered $600,000. 
The estimated cost of the picture had now skyrocketed to nearly $5 million, as well as nearly $1.5 million for the stars and director. And despite Elizabeth Taylor's insistence on playing the role, there was still no guarantee that MGM would allow her to film it as an outside picture, as she had one more movie on her contract to make for them, and they were insisting that she appeared in Butterfield 8. At last, on October the 15th, 1959, Elizabeth Taylor signed on the dotted line to appear in Cleopatra. In actual fact, it was just a photo opportunity for the press as the actual contracts were not even drawn up. The movie was to be filmed in London as well as location shoots in Europe. Elizabeth Taylor demanded both penthouses at the Dorchester as well as putting forward her preferences for cameraman and assistant director. She also insisted that Sidney Gilleroff and Joan White be available as hairdressers. And so to the director. First choice, Alfred Hitchcock turned it down as he didn't think it was his cup of tea. Second choice, Ruben Mamoulian, director of Blood and Sand, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Queen Christina signed on the dotted line on October 21st, 1959. As for the role of Caesar, well, initially Noel Coward expressed interest in the part, but the studio were considering Frederick March. Laurence Olivier, after a lot of consideration, turned it down. He had played Shaw's Caesar and Cleopatra, as well as Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra, and felt that the movie wouldn't add anything to his lustre. And to make matters worse, having decided on filming at Pinewood Studios, the producer and the director finally realised that England was cold and rainy, and Pinewood really didn't look like Egypt at all. Plus there were probably not going to be enough stages, and those that were there were fairly small. December 1959. Elizabeth Taylor was struck down with double pneumonia. The budget leapt by another half a million dollars when a studio head bought an Italian version of Cleopatra to keep it off the market. And at the dawn of the 1960s, expeditions to Turkey and Italy were undertaken to scout for locations, all adding to the budget. In March, the Screen Actors Guild went on strike, so the studio looked at an Italian co-production, coincidentally with Leonello Santi, the man who produced the Italian version of Cleopatra. Two more writers were brought in to complete the script, including Lawrence Durrell. The expected Italian co-production fell through in April 1960, and the decision was finally made that the movie, despite any issues that may have been brought up, was to be filmed at Pinewood with locations in Italy. A starting date of June the 17th had been agreed. Six weeks before this, Elizabeth Taylor was as excited as ever about making the movie, especially as it was to be filmed abroad. 
and still she was insistent that Sidney Gilleroff be brought in as her hairstylist as he had done her hair on most of her movies. Three problems. Would he be available? Would MGM allow Fox to borrow him? And would they be able to get permission for him to work in London? And as the starting date rapidly approached, it appeared that problem after problem would rear its ugly head on an almost daily basis. At Pinewood, there were not enough plasterers to complete the sets. Props for the movie were impossible to source in England, so everything had to be designed and built from scratch, which was an expensive and slow process. The British Hairdressers Union protested against the employment of Sidney Gilleroff, claiming that by using him it was a poor reflection on the skills of the English hairdresser. And it was cold, and it was damp, and Elizabeth Taylor had only just recovered from pneumonia. By May the 6th, the studio took the decision to cap the budget for the movie at $4 million. A totally unrealistic sum considering that half of that had been spent already and not a single foot of film to show for it. Laurence Olivier was again approached for the role of Caesar and turned it down once more, electing to film Beckett instead. There was chaos in Rome, it was the summer of the Olympic Games there and there was a shortage of living space. The studios in Rome would need soundproofing and most of the equipment the crew would require just wasn't available. Studio head Spiros Skouros was adamant about two things. One, he didn't want Rex Harrison in the movie. And two, he didn't want Richard Burton either. He thought that they were both not big enough draws for the picture. The studio demanded cuts to the script, which would not only make the movie shorter, but would drastically change the glamorous and colourful vision of Walter Wanger. With four weeks to go before the proposed start date, There was nothing else for it but to put it back to August the 15th. And still, there was not enough studio space, no full cast, no complete script, and not enough labourers. There were no wigs, not enough costumes, and word came back from Pinewood that the Alexandria set would probably not be ready until November, ten weeks after they were scheduled to use it. June 1960. Elizabeth Taylor was insistent on making sure that Sidney Gilleroff be brought on to do her hair on the picture, to the point where she threatened to drop out if it didn't happen. Within the space of 24 hours, the budget was raised to $6 million and then dropped again to five. And as for the location filming, the decision was changed again. This time, the desert scenes were to be filmed in England, a cold, rainy, cloudy England with forecasts predicting more of the same. 
The budget meant that instead of filming in CinemaScope, it would be filmed in Todd AO instead. Studio President Spiros Skouros flew into London on June the 25th to see things for himself, and despite being presented with a dossier containing the last three years weather reports, he insisted that England was the best place to make the movie. He did however concede that the crew could now go to Egypt to film the desert scenes. On July the 11th, the head of Fox Studios, Buddy Adler, died after a short battle with cancer. Bob Goldstein was appointed his replacement, and Walter Wanger, as well as overseeing the whole Cleopatra fiasco, was asked to sit in as head of European production. By July 1960, the script finally started to come together. Locations in Egypt had been found, and incredibly, Elizabeth Taylor suddenly refused to sign her contract. As it turned out, Taylor was just playing games with Spiros Skouros, and teasing him by pretending to still be looking over it. And what a contract it was, the biggest in Hollywood history. A salary of $125,000 for 16 weeks' work. $50,000 per week after 16 weeks, 10% of the gross income of the movie, plus page after page of special conditions. $3,000 per week for all living expenses, including food and lodgings. First class travel for Elizabeth Taylor and three adults and three children between California and London whenever necessary. There was even the promise of a 16mm print of the completed movie for her personal use. By August 1960, the Alexandria and other sets stretched over eight acres on the Pinewood lot. There was 142 miles of tubular steel, 20,000 cubic feet of timber, 7 tons of nails and 300 gallons of paint. Rental costs for the scaffolding alone was running at $2,000 per week. Palm trees had to be imported from Hollywood as construction began on four large sphinxes, each 52 feet high and 65 feet wide. And incredibly, a trail of spoiled fish had to be laid down regularly just to entice seagulls away from the nearby gravel pit. The producer, tiptoeing around the whole Gilleroff hairdressing issue, advised that he should turn up anyway and they would deal with any union issues nearer the time. Eventually, on August the 31st, 1960, surrounded by paparazzi, Elizabeth Taylor finally flew into London with her husband, Eddie Fisher. Shooting finally started on September the 30th, 1960. But in what is typical of this entire story, was that there was a problem. Or several, to be exact. The temperature in London was a chilly 7 degrees centigrade. There was only 2 minutes and 20 seconds of sunshine recorded that day and Liz Taylor had a cold. Shooting took place around her. The cast at this point had finally been agreed and signed, and on set was Peter Finch playing the role of Caesar, and Stephen Boyd as Mark Antony. The script, if truth be told, really wasn't complete at this point. The days dragged on with only mere seconds of sunshine every day. It was October after all. It was bitterly cold, 
but Liz Taylor had a temperature of 100 degrees and the Cold War with the hairdressers' union dragged on and on. Mid-October 1960, still no sign of Elizabeth Taylor on set. There was a danger at this point of the entire production closing down. 1,000 extras were on set actually filming in Frost at this point, and the insurance company was getting twitchy. The Queen's physician, no less, was called in to examine Elizabeth Taylor. He traced her illness back to an abscess that she had three weeks previously. The cold had developed into a mild fever, and it was concluded that she had a virus or some sort of infection. Whatever it was, he pronounced her unfit for work and ordered her to stay in bed until the fever subsided. And so, the pattern of events would continue in this fashion right through until Christmas 1960. Everything had to be shot around the absent Elizabeth Taylor, which was probably quite fortunate as most of the costumes were not ready and the script was still not complete. All that could be done was just to set the stage for some of the big scenes. The movie was running at a loss of over $120,000 per day. Skouros really wasn't happy with the casting of Stephen Boyd and Peter Finch, and doctors at the London Clinic eventually diagnosed Elizabeth Taylor with Malta fever, a bug that was difficult to shake off and could take her anything up to three months to get over. The weather got so bad that exterior shots couldn't even be considered. The insurance company pushed and pushed for a new leading lady. Elizabeth Taylor was discharged from the London Clinic in early November, but there were further health scares that seemed to occur on an almost daily basis. A possible infected tooth one day, suspicion of meningitis no less the next. And so, the decision was taken on November the 18th, 1960, to shut down production temporarily, as there was pretty much nothing that could be achieved at this point without the leading lady. Shooting was set to recommence in the new year. Your love means more to me than all the apples hanging on a tree. And like those apples, I love will grow because I, I love you. January the 3rd, 1961, Cliff and the Shadows were at number one in the chart, and it was almost as if the break in the shooting hadn't taken place at all. Like those fishes. Elizabeth Taylor wasn't happy with the script. Her husband, Eddie Fisher, wasn't best pleased with the climate, fearing it would only make her ill again. And the dispute between Gilleroff and the hairdressers refused to go away. I need you near to me more than anyone could ever know. In the meantime, Elizabeth Taylor, Eddie Fisher and the children were still living it up like royalty at the Dorchester, surrounded by their cats, their dogs and visitors dropping in at all hours. There were numerous meetings and arguments surrounding the script throughout January, and eventually enough was enough for director Ruben Mamoulian, who after 15 months of struggling to get his vision off the ground, finally handed in his resignation. The rumours soon flew around Hollywood and the press that Elizabeth Taylor would be next. But on February the 1st, 1961, with Joseph L. Mankiewicz now on board as writer-director, there was a series of sudden and drastic decisions that would change the entire concept of the movie. Knows what and what 
points too I'm the one and the other one's you So let's get together and you will see how much I, I love you Let's get together and you will see how much I, I love you Mankiewicz decided that nothing could be salvaged from what had taken place previously. He took over with a new vision and ideas of a script rooted firmly in history. A vision that saw Cleopatra as one of the first women to rule in a man's world. A woman who wanted it all and picked off the number one and number two ranking men of that world in succession. Joseph L. Mankiewicz's concept of Cleopatra was not a wide-eyed child. She was an artist of consummate femininity, a genius in the art of attracting men. In order to realise this new vision of the movie, pretty much everything, not just the script, was discarded. All the contract people were paid off, including Caesar himself, Peter Finch, who alone received $150,000 for his trouble. Only ten and a half minutes of film had been shot. Total cost to date, $4,998,000. Estimated further cost to complete the movie, another $4,866,000. Plans were put in place to rewrite the screenplay, with shooting scheduled to restart in April, surprisingly still in London, with exteriors in Egypt. The thought behind this was it made some sort of financial sense due to the cost of the sets that had already been built. But despite all of the new preparations and the upbeat attitude of all concerned who at last could see some faint glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel, an event took place that would bring the whole production crashing to the ground. February the 19th, 1961, it would be Eddie Fisher, Elizabeth's husband and not Elizabeth herself, who found himself a patient at the London Clinic. During the shutdown of production, Eddie and Elizabeth flew out to Zurich for a vacation. Here, Eddie was struck down with appendicitis and was flown quickly back to London for an operation. In the rush and the panic that followed, Elizabeth Taylor caught Asian flu. Over the next few days, as Eddie recovered from his surgery, Liz became progressively worse. On March the 4th, attended by no less than 11 doctors, Elizabeth Taylor was diagnosed with Staphylococcus pneumonia. She was given only one hour to live unless surgery could be performed to open her windpipe and ease congestion. An emergency tracheotomy was performed and Elizabeth Taylor placed in an automatic respirator to ease her breathing. It didn't look good, as doctors told her family to prepare for the worst.
Her situation was so bad that at one point on March the 6th, there were news reports in America that she'd actually died. Elizabeth Taylor underwent numerous blood transfusions and was fed intravenously for the next few days before eventually, on March the 11th, she was out of danger and the tube removed from her throat. And in typical Elizabeth Taylor fashion, she was sitting up in bed drinking champagne the next day, being visited by friends such as Truman Capote. All of these problems seemed a lifetime away when shooting finally commenced in September 1961, seven months after Elizabeth Taylor's life-saving tracheotomy. And it certainly was an eventful seven months, a period of time that would see Elizabeth Taylor receive an Academy Award for Best Actress in Butterfield 8. The existing sets in London were torn down, costing an estimated $600,000. What was left at Pineford was skillfully used the following year in the filming of Carry On Cleo. It was a summer of huge changes and upheaval at 20th Century Fox. More than half the studio lot had been sold for a gigantic housing development and would soon become Century City. Only a handful of movies were actually being filmed, with most of the sound stages now dedicated to TV productions. The script was finalised by Randall McDougall based on the new outline by Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Irene Sharaf was brought in to design Elizabeth Taylor's costumes, and Leon Shamroy became the new cameraman. The plan that summer, as the new preparations began in August, was for the movie to be made in Italy and Egypt during September and October, with all the interiors to be shot in Los Angeles in the winter. Elizabeth Taylor's health improved as negotiations for recasting the other roles began in earnest. Richard Burton was a massive hit on Broadway at this time in Camelot and was now Mankiewicz and Wanger's first choice for the role of Mark Antony. Elizabeth Taylor was keen to bring in her old friend and childhood acting partner Roddy McDowell for the part of Octavian. In June, the plans to film in Egypt fell through, effectively meaning all location work would now take place in Italy. And amongst all of this, Elizabeth Taylor's contract was tweaked and adjusted from the original with demands that due to her recent poor health, her personal physician should accompany her for the duration of the Rome shoot at the cost of $25,000 plus expenses for the expected six weeks he was to be there. She was also now demanding that her own personal cook be brought along as well. Trevor Howard was very nearly cast as Caesar at this point, which, after negotiations fell through, attention turned once again to Rex Harrison, who eventually signed on the 11th of September 1961 at $10,000 per week, plus expenses, plus car and driver and co-star billing. At the same time, Roddy McDowell was agreed and brought into the cast, as was Hume Cronin and most of the remainder of the co-starring and feature roles. 
The following day, the handmaidens and the slave girls walked out, protesting that the costumes they had to wear were far too skimpy. Whilst protesting the following day, it was pointed out that the clothes that they were wearing on the picket line were actually skimpier by far than the costumes they were expected to wear. Immediately, they returned to work. But despite all of this, things were progressing well, and as the start date grew nearer and nearer, Spiroskouros' demands that the budget be capped at $8 million was looking totally unrealistic, with a new estimate of at least $14 million being suggested. This is of course on top of all the wasted millions spent in London. Every day that the cast and crew were not at their cameras or on the set was costing $67,000 in overheads. September the 25th, 1961, almost three years to the day that Walter Wanger was first approached by Fox to film the movie, and the first scene was finally shot. But within a week, some of the old problems resurfaced, as well as some new ones. Circus owner Ennio Tosni attempted to sue Fox for $100,000 for supposedly breaching his contract for the supply of elephants, and bizarrely, he also claimed that the studio slandered his animals after referring to them as wild. And then the rains came down. Just like in London, it became bitterly cold and damp. The extras complained about sanitary conditions. Joseph Elmankovich caught quite a bad cold and Rex Harrison suffered briefly with a stomach bug. The rain continued for nearly two weeks, flooding the forum, making it impossible to use for a while. But luckily, reports were coming back from Hollywood that the rushes were excellent. October the 24th, 1961, Rex Harrison and Richard Burton began their scenes together, which presented no problems and looked great. A week later, filming started on the carpet scene, which also worked very well. That rug seems harmless enough. No, Caesar. But you can lend me your sword, Rufio. It may require some cutting. The scene in which Cleopatra was delivered to Caesar wrapped in a carpet proved to be a little tricky, as the carpet had to be made of a lightweight fabric so that she would not be uncomfortable and that the audience would not be able to see the outline of her form in it. Odd way to carry a rug. Wouldn't it be easier to uh, sling it over your shoulder? It was less comfortable that way. For you or the rug? Uh, that sword, Caesar. The rug is such a delicate weave. If I may untie it for you. Turn it over first. But the rug is now right side up. I understand, but I want it the wrong side up. Or should I flip it over with my sword? No, no, no. I find one can tell more about the quality of merchandise by examining the uh, backside first. All hail Cleopatra, kindred of Horus and Ra, beloved of the moon and sun, daughter to Isis, and of upper and lower Egypt, queen. (laughs) 
Thank you. Yeah. Take this to the captain of the night watch. He'll see that the Queen's quarters are made ready and available to her. Stay where you are. Have I dismissed you? No, Your Majesty. This is my palace, Caesar. All of it is therefore available to me at my will. I am not your prisoner. If anything, you are my guest. Most kind. And as for having my quarters, as you put it, made ready, my chief handmaiden has by now brought the others out of hiding. They should almost be finished. I'm afraid it's impossible. We've had the doors under heavy guard. There are doors and doors. Oh, yes, of course. You must take me on a tour someday within the walls of your palace. What are you waiting for? Permission to leave. Got it. Polidorus. Thank you. November brought more rain, the worst Rome had seen in a century according to the locals. Funny as that was pretty much the same story in London the year before. Spiroscurus readjusted his budgetary demands capping production costs at $10 million. Producer Walter Wanger didn't take long to work out that realistically they were looking at something just over $15 million. Following a six-hour conference, Skouros raised the limit to $12.5 million without overheads. Wanger pointed out that they'd spent that much already and the picture was far from completion. At one point, the head of Cinerama, Nicholas Rossini, approached the producers and offered to buy Fox out of the picture, intending to transfer the existing footage to the Cinerama process. Skouros was incensed at the thought of someone trying to buy the picture effectively to get the studio off the hook. There was no way he'd permit it. The company would be ruined if the story got out. And so certain changes were proposed and implemented in order to save costs. It was suggested at one point that just before Christmas 1961 that Elizabeth Taylor worked for one straight month with no time off. After careful consideration, it was feared that that would create too much tension and strain on her. Plus, she was starting to feel pain from her previous issues with her bad back. Rex Harrison had gone to England for a few days, and on his return discovered that his trailer had been changed to a smaller one, and that the studio was refusing to pay for his Cadillac. Sid Rogel, the money man who had authorised the cuts, was summoned by Harrison, who in a typically British manner started the conversation by establishing that he was a star and Rogel a production man. I treat my servants very well, and you are my servant, he said. The conversation soon developed into Harrison totally humiliating Rogel with a series of threats and demands. Harrison, who was due on set at the time, refused to get dressed at all in his costume. On top of this, he said he'd not report for work until his car and trailer were back and his chauffeur paid. Harrison ended the whole thing by pointing his finger at Rogel, almost like Caesar himself, and said, You are now dismissed. Needless to say, Rogel admitted that Harrison had a point, and the trailer and the car were duly reinstated. When Harrison eventually appeared on set later that afternoon, he was met with a rapturous round of applause. 
December 13th, 1961, the nude scene. On stage five that morning, security was at an unheard of level. The set was fenced in with only the minimum crew necessary for the actual shooting. No visitors were allowed on set that day apart from Elizabeth Taylor's husband Eddie Fisher and her close friend Roddy McDowell who had also been given special permission to take still photographs of the scene. The only members of the cast on stage were the handmaidens whose roles called for them to massage the naked Cleopatra after she emerged majestically from her ornate, elaborate marble bath. And of course, extra heating was brought in so that the cold did not affect the delicate constitution of Miss Taylor. I understand your position, Rufio. Surely you must understand mine. I do not intend to join that long list of queens who have quivered happily at being summoned by Lord Antony. But surely I didn't say summon. You said invite. He meant summon. In any case, I am the queen of Egypt, and I choose to remain on Egyptian soil. Tarsus is not the other end of the world, Your Majesty. If it were one step from Egypt, that would be too far. I will meet with Lord Antony, but only on Egyptian soil. My lady, a way must be found, a time, a place to satisfy you both. Must it prove you? As 1961 drew to a close, just prior to the Christmas shutdown, there was, of course, the by now familiar worries. Elizabeth Taylor developed phlebitis, an inflammation of the veins, which meant she had to rest her leg in case a blood clot was formed. And totalling up the budget, it soon became apparent that the figure was now in the region of $24 million. The studio heads were frantic at the thought of such a sum, but Walter Wanger and Joseph L. Mankiewicz remained confident in their prediction that the movie would be so successful that they could expect to gross $100 million at the box office. 1962 started off with the usual story of Elizabeth Taylor being too ill and therefore not starting work again until the end of January. Rex Harrison kicked off again when he discovered that Elizabeth Taylor's chauffeur had all his expenses paid by the studio and demanded the same courtesy. And the young boy, originally cast as Caesarian, Cleopatra's son by Caesar, well, it had taken so long to get round to shooting his scenes that he now towered over Elizabeth Taylor and was built, according to Walter Wanger, like Jack Dempsey. Nineteen sixty two would also herald the next chapter in this epic saga, that of the relationship between Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. There have been rumours circulating in the press towards the end of 1961 that Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher were getting a divorce. These were started by renowned Hollywood gossip columnist Luella Parsons. And if it were true, well, Elizabeth Taylor and Eddie Fisher certainly weren't making it obvious. When Elizabeth Taylor eventually returned to work towards the end of January 1962, she and Richard Burton played their first scene together. According to producer Walter Wanger, there comes a time during the making of a movie when the actors become the characters they play. 
This merger of real personality into the personality of the role has to take place if a performance is to be truly effective. That happened on this particular day. The scene was written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz so that the audience would be aware that Cleopatra and Mark Antony are attracted to each other, although they had little to say. The scene was Caesar's. The stage was thereby set for the second half of the movie. In the scene, all of the senators of Rome are called by Caesar to a meeting in Cleopatra's villa in Rome. The senators are angry that they must meet in her villa, but they come because it's Caesar's command. And Mark Antony, for the first time, is seen not as a warrior and friend of Caesar, but as the young protagonist, the man who will one day take over Caesar's empire and his woman. While other sections of the scene were being filmed, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton would sit together in the sidelines intently talking. Elizabeth Taylor was radiant, elegant in a simple yellow silk gown. Burton wearing a knee-length Roman toga that made him look handsome, arrogant and vigorous. When they were called, they separated for a moment, then met on set in their proper places. The cameras turned and the current was literally turned on. It was quiet, and you could almost feel the electricity between Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. Rumours began to spread amongst the cast and crew that Burton and Taylor were not just playing Antony and Cleopatra. Joseph L. Mankiewicz had known for weeks as he was very close to the pair of them and he knew exactly what had been going on. The rumours got back to Eddie Fisher. Liz and Eddie flew to Paris for a few days to talk things over. Richard Burton went to Naples with his brother, leaving his wife Sybil in Rome. Burton, fearing that the rumours would lead to him being fired, had a long heart-to-heart with the producer. He explained how happy he was with Sybil, but he was also a very selfish man, devoted to his acting and his career. Burton didn't want anything to hurt his career or his wife, and he would also not do anything to harm Elizabeth Taylor. Richard Burton was 36 years old and a shrewd businessman. Independently wealthy, he owned a quarter share in a Swiss bank. Exceptionally educated and one of the leading Shakespeare scholars, he could recite poetry from Keats to Dylan Thomas by the hour. It's easy to see why Elizabeth Taylor was attracted to him. He had the rugged physique of an ex-miner and a charm that was second to none. Elizabeth Taylor met Richard Burton at a crossroads of her life. There were not many men like Richard Burton around, and Elizabeth Taylor met him in a moment of loneliness when she was tired and confused after a near brush with death in London and subsequent boredom in California. Burton could provide the excitement that she required, and Eddie Fisher couldn't. Burton had strength and experience and was able to open up her dreams for her. Fisher, who was a great deal younger, well, he was more like a brother. The studio's publicity people consistently refused to give out a statement or denial, as that would only incite the world's press to write a story. If the press just ran with the rumours, they could have been sued for libel, which was why for a few weeks there was no big story published. However, Without consulting the studio, Burton, with collaboration from his own press agent, Chris Hoffer, 
released the following statement. For the past several days, uncontrolled rumours have been growing about Elizabeth and myself. Statements attributed to me have been distorted out of proportion, and a series of coincidences has lent plausibility to a situation which has become damaging to Elizabeth. Mr Fisher, who has business interests of his own, merely went out of town to attend to them for a few days. My foster father, Philip Burton, has been ill in New York, and my wife Sybil flew there to be with him for a time. Since my schedule does not permit me to be there, he is very dear to both of us. Elizabeth and I have been close friends for over 12 years. I have known her since she was a child star, and would certainly never do anything to hurt her personally or professionally. In answer to these rumours, my normal inclination would be simply to say no comment, but I feel that in this case, things should be explained to protect Elizabeth. And that was it. At last, it was the first real news peg the press had to print the rumours, and they took full advantage of it. The romance became front-page headlines around the world, and reporters and photographers flocked like vultures to Rome. Throughout all of the ensuing madness, Elizabeth Taylor remained with Eddie Fisher. Fox's offices in New York and Hollywood were hysterical over the publicity the romance was getting. They even referred to it as a cancer and truly believed that it would destroy them all. The press in America had a field day. Work on the picture continued at an even faster pace. The plan was to finish all the shooting involving Elizabeth Taylor as soon as possible. Once she had finished, the pressure from New York and Hollywood would be lightened, as she wasn't insured. This was due to her previous health concerns, and the longer she stayed in Rome, the greater the chances of her becoming ill again. Joseph L. Mankiewicz was distraught and overloaded with work. There was the pressure from Hollywood, the demands of writing and directing, plus the romance. He had huge battle scenes to direct, and to make matters worse, the press even reported that Roddy McDowell was having an affair with Sybil Burton, which of course was complete rubbish. And as March approached, there was the usual delays due to weather, Elizabeth Taylor's phlebitis, and another brief period of illness for Rex Harrison. On March 5th, Joseph L. Mankiewicz presided over the filming of the bath scene. In this scene, Germanicus, played by Robert Stevens, came from Rome to get Antony to return. Antony refuses to see him because he is so happy with Cleopatra. To hell with Rome, his wife and duty. 
Cleopatra comes in to see Antony, who is in the bath with three handmaidens, pouring water over him and sponging him down while he banters with them. When Cleopatra enters, the handmaidens take off, and Antony comes out of the bath all chic and masculine in his toga. Trying to go. Mm-hmm. Let's have that goat again. Not too much. There. Mm-hmm. The milk of a cow, of a goat, and of an ass. Which would you say is best for softening the beard? Is it true that Octavian shaves but once a week? Even then, he is merely to face the wind and let the fuzz blow away. You knew, didn't you, that Germanicus was here from Rome? Yes. Have you strong feelings about beards? I had one in my youth. Right ready, boss. Why haven't you seen him? When you go... Must it be for very long? I must take some of these back with me. They don't have them. At least they didn't when I was last in... in Rome. Taylor and Burton then commence a marvellous and beautiful love scene. The dialogue, written by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, is right out of real life, with Cleopatra telling how she will feel if Antony leaves her. Love can stab the heart, she says. It's difficult to tell if Burton and Taylor are reading lines or actually living the parts. While they were digging the foundation of my tomb, the workers found an old wall. Someone had scratched on it hundreds of years ago. You were not here last night, and I could not sleep. Will you be here tonight? Do you suppose they ever met again? Everything that I shall ever want to hold or look upon or have or be is here now with you. I must not be sorry for myself. Queens are sometimes no better at that than kings or even princes. It doesn't seem fair. What I feel I should have felt long ago. When I was very young, when I could say to myself that this was how love was and how it would be. But to have waited so long, to know so suddenly, this late, how it hurts, how love can stab the heart. Be... Careful with Octavian. Well, let him be careful with me. The Romans want no war between the two of you. In any case, you are not ready yet. Wars? The world is filled with love. There'll be no more wars. You must have your share. Your titles and powers must be spelled out exactly. There can be no question of your complete authority in the East. Antony, how will I live? Same as I. One breath upon the other. Each bringing us one breath closer. You take so much of me with you so far. Remember, remember, they want you to forget, please. Forget? Wow. I can never be more far away from you than, than this. <laughs> 
Three days later, the newspapers ran a story saying that Burton would never marry Taylor and he had no intention of leaving Sybil. The timing couldn't have been more perfect, for later that day the scene in which Cleopatra finds that Antony has deserted her was to be filmed. In the scene, she enters his bedroom, takes a dagger and stabs all his clothes. She then slashes at the curtains, before finally cutting the bed to ribbons and collapsing onto it in tears. It was a difficult and strenuous scene, but Elizabeth Taylor managed to complete it in just a few takes. In fact, she went so wild at one point that she banged her hand. This resulted in the by now familiar trip to the hospital for x-rays and the obligatory few days off from filming. The budget for the movie now stood at a staggering $27 million. As well as the romantic scandal that was proving to be a bigger story in Rome than the death of the Pope himself, Rex Harrison was at the centre of a minor diplomatic scandal. During production on March the 22nd, Harrison married the actress Rachel Roberts in Genoa. Following a short honeymoon, Roberts returned to London to finish a picture she was working on. Flying back into Rome, she was met by her new husband at the airport, and as she was travelling without any luggage apart from a handbag, customs officials insisted that they inspect it. This infuriated Rachel Roberts, and both her and Rex Harrison made quite a scene by all accounts, in which they said some things that, quite frankly, were not flattering to the Italian government and the Italian people, something that one just cannot do in Italy. Two days later, Rex Harrison found himself having to apologise in court and the case was dismissed thanks largely to the British Embassy as well as Fox's press and legal departments. Towards the end of March, it was reported in the press that Eddie Fisher, who by now had returned to New York, had had a nervous breakdown. It was in fact only the flu. But as was proving commonplace, the press jumped on the story, choosing to report the breakdown. Taylor and Burton decided that they'd had enough of being chased by the paparazzi and set out to do some chasing of their own. On April the 1st, 1962, the front pages were full of pictures of the pair of them walking arm in arm down the Via Veneto. Taylor smiling and dressed in a leopard skin coat and cloche hat. The papers reported how they'd held hands, danced and kissed many times, although there was no photographic evidence to back this up. The following day, Taylor and Burton went on a family-style picnic with Taylor's children. The paparazzi were of course there as well, as uninvited guests. The studio sent out orders that the scenes with Elizabeth Taylor should be finished by May the 15th. Every day she worked, it cost them $10,000 plus the $3,000 per week for her expenses. There were also fears that should her health fail, there was no insurance. And as the newspapers reported at the time, if Elizabeth coughs, Fox gets pneumonia. By the beginning of April 1962, half the movie was in the can, 
and the pace appeared to have picked up a little. Burton left for Paris for a few days to film some scenes for another movie, The Longest Day, and Rex Harrison disappeared back to London for a few days without letting anybody know. The pressure on Elizabeth Taylor from the world's press was enormous and showed no signs of letting up. And so, to April the 13th, 1962, when one of the most dramatic scenes in the movie was filmed. And at the time, the parallel between the life of Cleopatra and the life of Elizabeth Taylor is incredible. The scene, filmed in the Forum, called for Cleopatra to make her entrance into Rome, sitting with Caesarion on top of a 35-foot-high black sphinx drawn by 300 gold-covered slaves. The entrance into Rome was Cleopatra's big gamble. If the Romans accepted her with an ovation, she had won Caesar. If they refused to accept her, she had lost him, and very possibly her life. The day before shooting this scene, the Vatican City Weekly, Osservatore della Domenica, published an open letter, which was a cruel and unmistakable attack on Elizabeth Taylor, and in particular, what they perceived as her attitude towards marriage and her children. There were almost 7,000 Roman extras milling about in front of the Forum. All of them presumably had read the Vatican criticism of Elizabeth Taylor. Not only would the Roman extras be accepting Cleopatra, but they would also be expressing their personal acceptance of the woman playing Cleopatra. According to reports, the reception in the streets has been extraordinary. The Queen has given instructions for the procession to move as slowly as the people wish, for their full enjoyment. I might almost believe that Cleopatra set out to capture the citizens of Rome. One would have every reason for believing exactly that. Elizabeth Taylor was tense and nervous before the scene. Her costume designer, Irene Sharaf, would recall that she had never seen her so nervous before. And as Joseph L. Mankiewicz called action, Elizabeth Taylor riding high on top of the Sphinx appeared. The crowd shouted out as one, Bachi, Bachi, meaning kisses, kisses. A sense of relief flooded through Elizabeth Taylor's body as the slave girls, senators, guards and thousands of others applauded her personally. And although this scene would not be completed for another four weeks, it's worth describing in detail at this point as the procession is a key scene in the first half of the movie and is probably best described by the producer Walter Wanger. At the time it took place, historically, the world belonged to Caesar. Cleopatra was determined to have Caesar, and therefore the world. While he'd been in Egypt near her, she controlled him. But he left her, knowing that the Roman people had granted him his power, and he must be in Rome to placate them. In making her entrance into Rome, Cleopatra could as easily be stoned by the mob as worshipped. To turn the tables in her favour, she decided to dazzle and tempt the crowd by presenting a show unlike anything they had ever seen. To capture Caesar, she must capture the mob. The question faced by Joseph L. Mankiewicz was the same question Cleopatra must have asked. What can surprise and seduce Caesar and the Romans? The scene he wrote is the highlight of the movie and possibly one of the most dazzling in the history of cinema. As outlined by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, the scene opens on a mass of people charging towards the arch in Rome. 
Suddenly, there is a chilling blast of 50 trumpeteers mounted on matched Arabian horses that explode through the crowd. The spectators scramble back and away from the flying horses. Clearing the arch, the trumpeteers crisscross in a Cossack manner and station themselves along the road. On their heels charge eight chariots drawn by matching teams. Beside each charioteer stands a bowman. At the point where visual impact will be the greatest, they shoot their arrows skyward. Trailing from each arrow is a long streamer of various shades of warm colour. Colours range from pink to cerise, from yellow to orange and vermilion. These arch into the sky and start downward. As the streamer-laden shafts reach the road on their descent, we see through them a group of dancers using streamer poles. By the deft handling of these poles, they are able to shoot the streamers 30 feet into the air. As the dancers flash by, we see their streamers shoot skyward like flames all around. This effect gave the editing team a perfect transition, not for a change of pace, but contrast. Cutaway shots, for example. The last reaction shot being faces that change rapidly from enjoyment to utter amazement. Then we see the 12 tall Negro warriors charging in a savage manner, carrying staffs from which pour yellow smoke. As they stab from side to side in ever-increasing cadence, the yellow smoke plumes trailing from their staffs as the beat quickens. Behind them, six men suddenly raise a golden backdrop of sparkling silk butterfly wings. No sooner are they raised than they separate. And bursting through them, into the yellow smoke, comes the wild but controlled savage dance of these enigmatic dancers. The drummers are not there for the beat alone. Instead, they're an integral part of the dance itself. The next section is introduced by Green Smoke, which is made up by 12 men carrying baskets of sealed pottery. As they serpentine a few steps, they smash the smoke-filled bombs to the street and green smoke rises. Hardly as it started when a group of 16 men in green costumes run towards the camera. At the last second, they stick their spears into the street and vault into the air over the camera. The camera tilts up at the top of their vault, and from the end of their spears trigger bombs of multicoloured paper which are ejected, then burst into a cascade of falling colour. As we return to the parade, we see a group of fan men who hold their golden fans interlocked in such a manner that it's almost like a bubble dance in which we get a peekaboo effect. Then they suddenly reveal a moving platform on which we see golden temples, obelisks and pyramids around which the winged girls do a dance of supplication. Behind this float is a golden grove of trees that conceals everything. All at this moment is gold. And on cue, the dancers drop to one knee and fold their wings and become still. At this precise moment, the monuments spring open and thousands of white doves fly skywards. 
now cut to the forum and we see the doves circling overhead. And coming through the arch, the golden trees which part and reveal the Egyptian honour guard. The honour guard passes through the arch, the people rush into the forum like a tidal wave, and we see the senators start to perk up. The camera now moves until it's in line with the parade and above head height. This move on the tilt-up reveals 400 slaves pulling the huge black marble sphinx. Every golden rope leads back to the gold shield on its chest. As they pull it through the arch, women gasp. Senators are amazed. Caesar is delighted. The slaves pull the sphinx close to the royal box and prostrate themselves. And now we see the golden statues of a queen and a boy being lifted by men who seem to be a part of the fretwork. As they carry the statues on the litter to the royal box, there is a silence louder than all that has happened before. At last, Cleopatra steps onto the floor, lifting her veil she bows to Caesar. For a second, the silence holds. Then, complete pandemonium. Cleopatra has conquered and won the Roman people. She looks proudly up at Caesar and winks. Queen has conquered the people of Rome. People? Yes. April the 14th, 1962. Shooting was halted on the forum scene as a sandstorm blew across the set. Joseph L. Mankiewicz would remark, that wind cost us $200,000. April the 17th, 1962. Shooting was delayed for an hour as Italian workmen tore apart one of the sets in order to locate the source of a mysterious noise. It turned out that there was a cat with five-day-old kittens tucked underneath the stage. At the normal hourly cost, the cat and kittens added $17,000 to the already straining Cleopatra budget. An earlier scene between Cleopatra and Mark Antony was also held up, this time for 45 minutes, while the entire crew chased the cat up a wall. The cat disappeared, only to be replaced by two low-flying bats, who put on a spectacular flying display for a further quarter of an hour. Another $17,000. Easter 1962, Taylor and Burton took off without telling the studio and ended up taking a short break at Porto Santo Stefano. Without the studio's protection from the press, the papers were filled with pictures of them overlooking the Tyrian Sea, sharing kisses and a bag of oranges. 
Sybil Burton flew in from London. She had got accustomed to the capital's tabloid press camping outside her house and following her and her children. But as a rule, she never read the popular papers. When the photos of Taylor and Burton appeared in the Sunday Times, however, she felt it was time to take notice. Burton's children would follow a few days later, but before this, Taylor, on her return from San Stefano, was involved in an accident. By all accounts, her chauffeur had to brake suddenly, causing her to lurch forward in the car and hit her nose. Her face and her nose were badly bruised, and she had a black eye. Another three weeks during which she could not be filmed. Eventually, on the 8th of May 1962, after months of rehearsals had begun, the procession scene was finally completed. It marked the end of part one of the movie, and a champagne party was held to celebrate. Surely the end was in sight now, but as yet, the crew hadn't even begun filming the scenes in Egypt. May 1962. Fox announced that losses from operations the previous year amounted to over $22.5 million. The predicted budget for Cleopatra now stood at $30 million. May the 19th, filming began in the mausoleum sequence. Throughout the movie, the mausoleum is established as a place of great importance. Mark Antony goes there when in despair, and it is the place where the events leading up to the death of Cleopatra take place. The sequence ended with the death of Cleopatra, the end of the movie. But since it was being filmed out of continuity, there was still major work to be done, including the battle scenes of Moongate, Tarsus, and Actium. For the death scene itself, it was decided to alter one of the many historical versions of the Asp episode. Joseph L. Mankiewicz was determined to use a real Asp, but it was impossible to remove its venom. A trainer from Africa was on set all the time the snake was used, and it was literally deadly. In the movie, the asp is seen in a basket of figs just before Cleopatra's hand reaches into it. Later, after Cleopatra's death, the snake is then seen gliding across the floor. Now, with the death scene filmed and 314 minutes of film shot, 
Fox suggested that it may be possible to cut and edit what they had to make a complete picture as long as they had the one obligatory scene, the death of Cleopatra. It was even suggested at this point that Elizabeth Taylor's double be used if necessary for certain scenes. Eventually, an ultimatum was reached, inspired by the huge production cost being incurred by the necessity for a swift completion of the production. Walter Wanger was to be taken off salary, and Elizabeth Taylor's salary and expense payments were to be terminated no later than June the 9th. All photography on the movie was to be halted no later than June the 30th, and no money was to be available for the production in Italy after June the 30th as well. Walter Wanger was having none of it, and had no intention of accepting this ultimatum from the company. But instead of arguing, he set out to do everything in his power to finish it properly. And finish it, he did, eventually. There was of course the familiar delays due to weather and illness. The Burton-Taylor romance continued under the glare of the world's press. Spiros Skouros handed in his resignation, and by the time principal shooting eventually wrapped in Egypt at the end of July, the final budget for the movie stood at a staggering $44 million. Cleopatra was the most publicised movie of all time. It was the most expensive, the most reviled even, and at its four-hour, three-minute original theatrical cut, it was the longest film Hollywood had ever released. The star of the picture, Elizabeth Taylor, received the highest salary ever for an actress. One million dollars, plus 10% of the gross, and threw up the first time she saw the movie. Richard Burton, however, claimed never to have seen it at all. Cleopatra, Siren of the Nile. Her stunning beauty and notorious intrigue turned the tide of civilization. In attaining her objectives, Cleopatra has been known to employ torture, poison, and even her own sexual talents, which are said to be considerable. Richard Burton as Mark Antony, rash, impetuous leader of once invincible legion, dreaded adversary on the field of battle. But a pawn in the arms of this woman. All that I shall ever want to hold, or look upon, or be, or have, is here now with you. Remember, remember, I want you to forget me, please. Forget? How? I can never be more far away from you than this. Rex Harrison as Julius Caesar, who ruled half the world by sheer might. Those ballistas need eliminating. Send out a turtle. But Caesar's dream of conquest included the ambitious Cleopatra at his side. Do as you say, literally, as if I was something you had conquered. <laughs> <laughs> 
if I choose to regard you as such. Am I to understand, then, that you feel free to do with me whatever you want? Whenever you want? Yes, I want that understood. Proconsul of Rome. I asked it of Julius Caesar. I demand it of you. I have no son. I will bear many children. Isis has told me. My breasts are filled with love and life. My hips are rounded and far apart. Such women, they say, have sons. The film is a milestone in the history of movie making, for not only does it transport you to the dying days of a mighty empire, Egypt, but it also signifies the beginning of the end of the studio system in Hollywood itself. In this era of CGI and special effects, the movie serves as a reminder that pretty much everything you see on screen was actually built by hand. There was the authentic harbour, a 12-acre Roman forum and the Royal Barge built from Plutarch's specifications that almost ended up as a restaurant at the 1964 New York World's Fair. The movie used 26,000 gallons of paint, 6,000 tonnes of cement, 150,000 arrows, 8,000 pairs of shoes and 26,000 costumes. There were 58 costumes alone for Elizabeth Taylor, one of which was made of pure gold and cost $6,500. And of course, the movie is remembered for the romance between the real-life Antony and Cleopatra, Burton and Taylor. There was a tempestuous relationship that lasted 12 years and included two marriages and two divorces. And despite all of the problems, the setbacks and general confusion as the movie was being made, it became one of the highest grossing films of 1963. It played in New York for 63 weeks and finally went into profit in 1966 after ABC paid $5 million for the TV rights. The movie was nominated for nine Oscars, including Best Actor for Rex Harrison, and won in four categories, Cinematography, Art Direction, Costume Design and Special Effects. There were savage reviews of the movie at the time of release, but in reality, it was hardly the fiasco its place in public memory would indicate. A flawed film, possibly. A troubled production, definitely. But it remains one of the most fascinating and important stories in the history of 60s cinema and Hollywood itself. Mm. 
As part of the British music invasion, she scored 18 singles in the Billboard Hot 100 between 1964 and 1970, including six top 20 hits. A true icon of the 60s and one of the voices of not just that decade, but the entire 20th century. But with all the fame and the hits, there were demons to battle and struggles with a world refusing to accept her sexuality. See you next time for the story of Dusty Springfield. Thanks for listening. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at RV underscore podcast. Join our Facebook group at Facebook forward slash Rainbow Valley podcast and take a look at the website rainbowvalley.libsyn.com. You can send us your thoughts and your feedback to rainbowvalleypod at gmail.com. This has been a Stinking Paws production.